millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jim, you and I both agree with the widely held view that the sudden chaotic withdrawal of U.S. troops and the collapse of the Afghan government is a huge embarrassment for America and a tragedy for Afghanistan. But will most American voters view it this way? Yeah, we're not going to know for a while. I've been kind of surprised by some of the reaction. We'll have more on the mess in Afghanistan later in this podcast. But first, let's go back and look at our history, put this in some kind of context. The fall of Afghanistan and why American isolationism is on the rise. Charles Kupchan. And suddenly, I think Americans said to themselves and to their leaders, wait a minute, too much world, not enough America. I want to get off this globalization train. Let's hit the brakes. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? America's response to the 9-11 attacks 20 years ago was similar in some ways to what happened after Pearl Harbor in 1941. There was a sudden upsurge in American military involvement overseas. But over the course of our history, there's often been great reluctance by the U.S. to project its military power beyond our borders. As we hear today, that began with our first president, George Washington. Charles Kupchin is a professor of international relations at Georgetown University and the author of the recent book, Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. He looks at the enduring connection between the isolationist impulse and the American experience. We're sharing some excerpts of a longer interview done by Justin Kempf, the host and brains behind the podcast Democracy Paradox. His show, like ours, is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Justin kindly agreed to let us share these thoughts on American history and foreign policy. Justin started by asking Professor Kupchin, how did isolationism first embed itself in the American identity? I think it comes back to the idea of American exceptionalism, that from the very beginning, even before the very beginning, going back to before the nation's founding, American colonists were talking about themselves as the new Israel, as a country that was going to remake the world, that would blaze a new path of Republican government, of liberty, of prosperity, and over time share it with others. 
But the founders believed that to do that, the United States needed to bank on its natural security. They feared, deeply feared, that ambition abroad would come at the expense of liberty and prosperity at home. So when George Washington in his farewell address of 1796 said, we want commercial relations with everyone, political connections with no one, he basically set a guidepost that successive generations followed really until the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. Do you feel that there's still a strain of American exceptionalism that continues to identify with isolationism to this day? I do. I mean, I think that that strain has been there all along, particularly in the American heartland, what my friend and colleague Walter Russell Mead calls the the Jacksonian parts of the country, the more populist and libertarian parts of the country, where there still is a concern about keeping the federal government out of my hair, keeping other countries out of our hair. We won't mess around in your affairs if you don't mess around in our affairs. And I think that in part because of what I would call overreach, beginning in the 1990s and then really picking up after 9-11, the United States overreached ideologically by thinking it could turn Iraq and Afghanistan into Ohio. It overreached economically by throwing open the nation's doors and saying, the more trade, the better. It overreached institutionally by trying to take Western institutions and bring in the Chinese, the Russians, their brothers, their sisters, their wives, their cousins. And suddenly, I think, Americans said to themselves and to their leaders, wait a minute, too much world, not enough America. I want to get off this globalization train. Let's hit the brakes. And in many respects, I think Donald Trump was the figurehead who was responding to that too much world, not enough America refrain. Most people think of isolationism as very much something that's American. Europe was not isolationist. In many ways, it couldn't be isolationist because it was surrounded by rivals. Every one of the countries was surrounded by a rival. So is isolationism really something that's uniquely American? Is it something that we see in other parts of the world? And how is it different if we do see it in other countries? I think American isolationism is unique or exceptional, to use that word, in part because the United States enjoys an exceptional geographic bounty. And the founders were quite aware of this. If you go back and read the Farewell Address, the Federalist Papers, the work of Thomas Paine, early addresses by American presidents, they're all talking about flanking oceans to the east and west, a large territorial expanse, no immediate threats from our neighbors other than via Europe's imperial powers. And so the United States had the luxury of saying, we enjoy a natural security. And we do. 
And one of the reasons that isolationism had such strong appeal is that it's kind of straightforward. It's self-evident. Europe is 3,000 plus miles away. Asia is some 5,000 miles away. Hey, we have it pretty good. Why rock the boat? So you began mentioning that isolationism was kind of self-evident because we didn't have neighbors on our borders, but we kind of did. I mean, we had Native American tribes up and down our frontier throughout most of our history through the 18th and 19th century. How did the conflicts with American Indian tribes fit into larger ideas of isolationism itself? Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. And I don't want to suggest that the United States was not expansionist. It was fiercely expansionist. I don't want to suggest that the United States was not coercive and ruthless. It was both toward Native Americans, toward Blacks, toward Mexicans. In the 1840s, we took about half of Mexican territory, just grabbed it. That's part of American history. And by isolationism, I'm really referring to, do we go beyond North America? Do we engage in the game of great power politics? Do we have a battleship fleet which we send around the world and beat our chest? That's the sort of test for me of whether the United States is isolationist or not. We were fiercely expansionist in North America. We were isolationist further afield. There's no question that our behavior toward Blacks, Native Americans, Latin Americans was completely at odds with our exceptionalist narrative. Here we are talking about the United States as blazing a new path, all men created equal. We're the new Israel. And in the meantime, we're either eradicating or subjugating Native Americans. We tried on numerous occasions to attack and annex Canada. We attack and annex a big chunk of Mexico. But in the American narrative, in the narrative of exceptionalism, Blacks, Native Americans, Latin Americans, they were not part of the American experience. They were not part of the American experiment. They needed to be civilized, Christianized. Maybe they could end up in it. But it was through that turn of phrase, through that sleight of hand, if you will, that Americans were able to subjugate Native Americans and at the same time sustain their exceptionalist narrative. So a big part of your book talks about the process, the buildup of liberal internationalism, but also talks about how America has begun to shift back towards isolationism once again. When did American foreign policy begin its shift back towards isolationism? Well, I think that, you know, the shift away from isolationism was sharp. It occurred on a dime. And that moment was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The America First Committee had formed in the 40s to keep Roosevelt from getting more involved in World War II. 80% of the American public was opposed to involvement in World War II. That changes almost overnight 
after the attack on Pearl Harbor and the war resolutions in Congress were almost unanimous. And that really begins this long run of American internationalism and the redefinition of American exceptionalism to the one that you and I have grown up with, which is that American exceptionalism is a justification, a rationale for going out and changing the world. I would say that the first signs of this narrative changing appear in the 1990s. And that's after the Soviet Union falls apart. There is a rapid decline in the coverage of foreign affairs in the media. Bill Clinton, the president at the time, engages very gingerly in the Balkans, really tries to de-emphasize the use of force. So you began to see this turning inward in the 90s. Then we have 9-11, and we focus again heavily on the outside world, first into Afghanistan, then into Iraq, then we're in Libya, then we're in Syria. And I think in some ways it was a reaction to the wars of 9-11 that brought the isolationist narrative, or at least the retrenchment narrative, back front and center. And it's worth keeping in mind that Barack Obama, who was an internationalist, ran for re-election on a bumper sticker that said, it's time for nation building here at home. He pulled out of Iraq. He said, I will be out of Afghanistan by the time my presidency ends. Well, it didn't work in part because the Taliban got too strong and the Islamic State came along. And then Trump comes into office. And in many respects, he picked up the task that Obama started. Now, Biden, he's rejecting much of what Trump did, but he is continuing the pullback, right? He's left effectively Afghanistan, despite the fact that the country is falling apart. He said no more combat troops in Iraq. And that's because he has heard loud and clear in the American electorate, Democrats as well as Republicans, it's enough already. We've been fighting these wars for 20 years and we don't have much to show for it. Now, I think that Biden correctly believes that Trump overcorrected, that instead of responding to this cry, too much world, not enough America, in a measured way, Trump slammed on the brakes. He pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, out of the Iran nuclear deal, out of the World Health Organization. He insulted allies. He said, what are our troops doing in South Korea? And he made a hash of things. And I think what Biden is trying to do is to sort of say, I need to correct for these overcorrections. I need to find that new sweet spot. We can't go back to the old days of America sending out the fire trucks every time there's a problem because the American people won't have it. On the other hand, we can't go back to isolationism because we live in a world that's irretrievably interdependent and globalized. So was Donald Trump an isolationist in the traditional definition that you use in the book? I think that Trump's instincts were isolationist. I would call him a kind of closet neo-isolationist in that if left to his own devices, I think he would have pulled the United States 
out of the wars in the Middle East and possibly decamped from major US positions in Europe and in Asia. He didn't do that in part because that's heresy. And I think the people around him and the people in the Pentagon were, no, no, you cannot do that. But if you actually look at what he said he wanted to do, if you look at the way he treated traditional allies, the Germans, the South Koreans, others, I think he really did have a conception of a world that looks more like the 19th century than the 21st, in which we go back to hardcore sovereign nation states, each looking out for its own back. And I think that Trump correctly read an American electorate that had tired of the exertions of global leadership, but that, as I said before, he went too far in attempting to solve the problem. So during the Trump presidency, Charles, there was a persistent narrative that Donald Trump's approach was oftentimes immature. I'd like to know from your perspective, after researching isolationism, do you feel that isolationism itself is an immature form of political thought? Or do you think that there is some maturity in retrenchment and some of the other ideas that isolationism fosters? Well, isolationism is still a dirty word. It's thrown around the halls of Washington to tar and feather people who argue that we should trim our commitments, pull in our sales, do less. And that's in many respects a legacy of the 1940s and the Cold War when isolationism was banished to the margins of American politics. And anybody who was basically supportive of isolationism was the whack job. One of the things I wanted to do in the book is say, hey, wait a minute. Let's have a full-throated conversation about the full range of options. Let's keep in mind that isolationism served the country extremely well. The United States rose in unmolested fashion in the 19th century, in part because we tended our own garden. We weren't building battleships and paying for colonies. We were building the American economy and pushing the frontier and you know, making America great, to use Trump's words. Then isolationism also had a very dark era, the 1930s. Americans stood by as fascism and Nazism and genocide started to sweep Europe. Had it not been for the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, it's possible we would have never entered the war, that we would have remained bystanders. But Today, let's have a big debate in which we look at full-on liberal internationalism. Let's talk about the strengths and weaknesses of isolationism. Let's talk about what's in the middle. And I think that Donald Trump may have been immature. My personal opinion is that he, he did the country a lot of damage, more because he threatened the underpinnings of liberal democracy because he challenged the outcome of an election that 50 states confirmed. But he had a very astute political sense. When he became president 
And I saw him to begin to pursue a foreign policy that was characterized by unilateralism, isolationism, protectionism, racism. I was like, wow, this is right out of American history. And so in that respect, I think Trump has done us a service by showing us the complexity of American politics and American identity and by driving home to us that we have a problem and that there are a lot of Americans out there who are not happy, who feel that they have been on the losing end of globalization, who feel that the system, if you will, hasn't worked for them. For me, the big challenge of our time is not to turn our backs on Trump, to bury Trump, to say good riddance, it's to learn the lessons. Charles Kupchin speaking with Justin Kempf. This interview, courtesy of the podcast Democracy Paradox. We included edited extracts. If you want to hear the entire interview that runs about 40 minutes, go to democracyparadox.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Next up, our recommendation. This one's from you, Jim. Yeah, this is a very conventional kind of recommendation. You know, I often sit around with friends and everybody's talking about what they're streaming on Netflix or, you know, the latest show. It seems I am slow to get around to those things. So here's another one (laughs) that I'm just catching up with. It's a British crime drama called Unforgotten. It started in 2015, and it's about a pair of London detectives who are investigating these cold case murders where uh, some body or skeletal remains get uncovered. It's beautifully done. The the two actors are Nicola Walker and Sanjeev Bashkar. And I'm only in the second season, but uh, I I find it a really rewarding break (laughs) at the end of a workday. 
Jim, it holds up. I've seen every single one. And Nicola Walker is one of my favorite British actresses. This is a great series and a fine recommendation. Thank you. Jim, if you asked me, and you haven't asked me yet, I'd say that the last great foreign policy White House was in the late 1980s under the first President Bush. For 30 years after the end of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, the U.S. role in the world has frequently been marked by drift and disappointments. There's little doubt that the manner of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is a disaster, and American credibility has also been hit hard. Uh, China, Russia, Iran, among others, are likely to be emboldened by the recent chaos and U.S. incompetence. Allies will ask in future, can we really depend on America? Yeah, I mean, it's really a debacle, and and I, I think it is something that will resonate for for decades into the future. What were their alternatives? Well, you could argue that the status quo there was actually not great, but tolerable, and that the, that the situation we will leave behind actually puts Afghanistan back to where it was uh, when uh, various, not just the 9-11 attacks, but a number of other major terrorist attacks against the Western world were being planned and organized out of that failed state. So for those who agree with the withdrawal, I don't see a lot to cheer here. And of course, it's a humanitarian disaster. We hired people, we trained people, we sent girls to school, we set up... I have a friend who worked helping set up a fair judicial system, you know, in the parts of the country where that was possible. The women that he trained to be lawyers and judges, what's going to happen to all those people? We, We... We invested in those people in that country, and I I think that even arguing that it was time to go, we didn't have to go like this. We've heard a lot of talk from President Biden and others about this endless war. This was not a war in the past few years. There have been no combat deaths for quite a while. The United States had 2,500 troops in garrison, not in combat roles. They were doing things like logistics, intelligence. They were doing maintenance, stuff in the background. And you compare our 2,500 American forces in in, in Afghanistan with 25,000 now in Korea. That commitment has gone on far longer. I just don't see why we couldn't have had a small... Uh, containable commitment to Afghanistan instead of letting the whole thing collapse. Yeah. So you could say that, well, are we isolationist? Are we not isolationist? Sometimes uh, sometimes being non-isolationist is thrust upon you. I mean, Pearl Harbor, <laughs> you know, it, it, we didn't have much of an option after that not to not to get involved. So we can't look at these things simply in terms of how do we feel domestically, how are our politics going, but also how is the world acting upon us and how are we pulled into global events? And then the question is, what is the appropriate response? It's easy, though, to focus on the past. Let's look ahead, Jim, and also some 
ways that we might be able to try and emerge from this mess. One change that I think could happen in the Biden administration is for the president and others to listen to a broader range of opinions, including dissent. He should seek out diversity of thought. We've often talked about diversity of thought on on this podcast. Groupthink has been a major cause of previous disasters from the Bay of Pigs to the invasion of Iraq. All too often, uh, we're encouraged to believe that there is a clean, simple solution. And I think that we need to be more comfortable with the complexities of any foreign involvements and Again, consider a wide range of opinions. Yeah, I'm not so sure this was a case of groupthink, though, because from everything I read, he was getting a lot of pushback, as Trump did from his military advisors on this and just said, screw it, we're going to do it. I think this is his decision. And and I, I don't think it was necessarily everybody working in lockstep. I think if with a different style of leadership, it's very possible this could have been done in a in a a less disastrous way. I think that also a flat-out partisan response to the crisis would make things even worse. I mean, Walter Russell Mead, who's one of my favorite foreign policy writers, wrote this week, Republican leaders, especially those with presidential ambitions, should demonstrate a capacity for statesmanship with something beyond schadenfreude. A doubting world needs to be reassured that America can steady itself. So that's part of what needs to emerge, as well as our need to consider our allies. I mean, in future, let's never repeat the mistakes of Presidents Trump and Biden and exclude an elected government, allies of our country, from talks with rebels. In addition, for years to come, and it may take many years, let's help the process of rescuing those who helped the U.S. and its NATO allies over the past 20 years. It's not the end of the game. No, but it doesn't look good, you got to admit. But people have been talking about plans to help these these translators and others who worked with the Americans for many, many years. The fact that everyone now is acting as if this whole thing was just sprung on us without warning and we just do the best we can, but there's not much we can do for a lot of people. I, I think it's shameful and, and it didn't have to be that way. We're United States of America. We should be better than that. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check out our consultancy at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 